Hello and welcome to another episode of the Violet Podcast. This week we'll be looking at democracy and why the arguments against democracy don't stand up to scrutiny. It's rather a long episode, but as always, if you have any comments about it, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. And if you've been enjoying our podcast series, please do help us share it with the rest of the world via social media, word of mouth, post, carrier pigeon, or however you usually keep in contact with the outside world. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. So this week's episode is going to be about democracy and whether we think democracy is a universal good. Uh, Spoiler alert, we do. The reason we're having this uh, podcast episode is because in a lot of our other episodes, we refer to democracy and we skim over it and we kind of just assume that it is a good thing. And we think it's worth devoting a podcast specifically to explaining why that is the case and why we do think democracy is a universal good. This isn't something which is sparked by any uh, particularly momentous current affairs issue, with the exception uh, of the fact that the Global Times, which is effectively a Chinese Communist Party uh, propaganda mouthpiece, ran an article last week predicting that democracy was on the verge of collapse, that it was a Western construct, and that it was unsuitable for tackling modern problems. And also the increased profile of the so-called Milky Alliance, a pro-democratic, uh, very loose social movement in East and Southeast Asia. But also, as we've said from the start, it's important that we don't look at major trends and concepts in political science when there are events that happen that sort of change our view of those, because then we end up looking at very uh, anecdotal and dramatic examples. It's important that we occasionally take a step back and look at a long-term, more theoretical view of things. Yeah, and with statistics in general, there's a lot of background noise, and we have to learn how to filter out the general trends and patterns from that and not get too bogged down or focused on specific anecdotes, uh, because anecdotes can, of course, be misleading uh, and mask general trends. So top of the bill, and I get teased for this a lot, but this is how we should start all debates. Democracy is a very fluffy, fuzzy word that's used by lots of people in lots of different uh, scenarios to mean lots of different things. So first things first, what is a democracy and what is not? How would you define it since that's <laughs> your, um, uh, your your special love definitions? <laughs> it's inviting you to have that one. <laughs> um, Democracy is not a binary. That is the first thing there is to say about this. Democracy is not simply about um, elections or not. A country is not just a democracy if it has them and not a democracy if it doesn't. Uh, It is a spectrum of the extent to which lots of different things are present. And elections are one of those things, but also various rights that go along with those elections, such as freedom of speech, so this does follow on nicely from last week, Uh, freedom of assembly, etc., come into democracy as well. So I guess if we were to try and pin down a definition of democracy, it's some kind of system of government or decision-making where people directly or indirectly make decisions. But as we said, it's more than simply are there elections or are they not elections? It's about how free the elections are how informed voters are and how informed voters can be. Um, The more general uh, atmosphere of discussion and dialogue, can issues be discussed? Um, How well are people's rights protected, like we said, to assembly, to speech? What's the constitution like? Does it restrict any one individual or any small group of individuals from from making decisions on their own without uh, popular consent? Are there different options to vote for? Because you could theoretically... Uh, have a, you know, you could have an election in which there's only one real viable option on the paper. Uh, And electoral systems also therefore play into this. Do we think electoral systems offer sufficient choice uh, and a sufficient degree of choice between different options? All of these things are part of democracy. So as we said, it's not necessarily the case that a country is democratic or isn't. It's a spectrum. Uh, A country can be more or less democratic Um, but the absolutes are really approximations or ideals that can't be reached. 
not that I would describe autocracy as an ideal, but it's a, yeah, it's an idealised hypothetical. Exactly. So I think the best way to view it is is to think of democraticness as a line and to sort of to sort of put some uh, meat on the bones of those hypotheticals at either end. At one end, you've got a sort of uh, a monarchic imperial system where there is one person who is uh, not chosen by anyone. They're, they're chosen by their birth to the previous ruler uh, who has complete control and everything they say is law. Um, they can do whatever they like. They are they're not culpable for anything and they can make up laws at whim. No one else has any sort of uh, right to do anything. And I guess the closest thing we have to that today is uh, something like North Korea. Exactly. Uh, even though in North Korea there are there are nominal elections and they're, they're actually very big events, but only Kim Jong-un is on the ballot paper. Yes, yes. I was going to raise that example <laughs> for your, your earlier point. Um, and on the other end, at the other extreme, you might have a sort of a very small community in which uh, major decisions are taken by everyone gathers together and, and discusses um, decisions and there might not even be a leader. Yeah, so you can have, well, th- this doesn't really exist on the level of a state uh, because there are simply too many people to discuss things directly, but there are many examples of acephalous uh, or leaderless societies um, in tribal parts of the world where people discuss things or discuss everything on a face-to-face basis uh, and come up with those decisions, but there are not uh, established political leaders. Um, from my from my anthropology degree, uh, harkening back quite a few years, a scarily long time, um, the Nur in uh, southern Sudan are one good example of, of such a society, which is acephalous, doesn't have a established political leader. They make decisions collectively. Right, and while it's it's generally considered that you know gathering the entire sixty five million bit more than that now, uh, population of the UK together to discuss every issue is obviously completely impractical. Um, We have elected representatives, but we do have relatively frequent elections to give the opportunity for people to change those officials. There are uh, rules on what those officials can and cannot do. They are subject to the laws that they create. Um, And there are a lot of people who are involved in the decision-making process, right? There are an extraordinary number of um, advisors and lobby groups and pressure groups and think tanks and charities and businesses and organisations who are constantly in contact with the government and uh, influencing their decisions one way or another. Right. And so if, if we were to have hypothetically the purest form of democracy, it would be, as we discussed, direct democracy. Everyone gets a direct say on every single issue. Obviously, that's rather impractical in large modern states, so we have representative uh, democracy. But that isn't purely something that happens at the ballot box, at votes. It's everything that goes into the vote. So all of the discussions, all of the campaigning, all of the different groups that have a say and a stake in the build-up to elections and referendums. Uh, But also what happens once representatives have been elected. How do you discuss with them? How are laws made? How is the government constrained? All of that is part of democracy. And perhaps the final uh, sort of brick in the wall of what constitutes democracy, but possibly the most important, is also the discussion and debate and dialogue that happens within just normal citizens and and members of the public who discuss uh, various policies and uh, moral ideas and what they think is right and what they think is wrong and what they would like to see from their um, government and the way they see their country and the way they would like to see their country. And so in that regard, this podcast, its recording, its listening, its distribution and everything in between is in its own tiny little way uh, a part of democracy. Yeah, and I think, well, this is something we'll discuss in more depth later in this podcast, but a lot of times when we say democracy has failed in a country, what we mean to say is that elections haven't gone smoothly or the electoral system has failed. And that's often because it's not embedded in a wider democratic civil society where people have these discussions and discuss policies and have political ideas. Uh, Elections on their own, as we said, don't constitute democracy and they don't really work unless you have that wider context of a democratic civil society where these kinds of discussions are had. Right, and this is something that we are 
fortunate enough to take for granted in, in the United Kingdom and in lots of other countries around the world. But we need to remember when we're discussing um, political ideals that they apply to everyone and that there are a shocking number of people in the world who can't openly discuss the leader of their country's latest policy idea or even their private life uh, without fear of serious retribution. So we thought the most sensible way to go about this podcast uh, would be to outline a number of common criticisms of democracy uh, and then outline why we disagree with those criticisms and why we think, in fact, democracy is universally good, is the best possible system of government and uh, the best possible system of running a country, even though, as we said, it's a hypothetical ideal and you can never be perfectly democratic. So the first very common criticism of democracy is that in democracies you can elect terrible leaders. Um, And the more recent example that people point to is Trump, uh, and going a bit further back, people always seem to refer to Hitler. Um, And people would say, well, Weimar Germany was a democracy, Uh, America in the modern day was a democracy, they both elected highly flawed, terrible leaders, therefore democracy is a bad system. As our resident historian, I'll leave the discussion of Weimar Germany to you. But in terms of uh, Trump and in terms of perhaps even Boris Johnson and uh, what a lot of people call populism in the modern day, the problem with leaders like Trump who are democratically elected and then continue to flout democratic norms who undermine elections by lying about uh, the freedom of those elections and claiming fraud where there was none, who try to get away with with breaking constitutional rules, who break constitutional norms, who try and keep themselves in power despite the fact that they have lost an election and uh, are trying to sort of fight the rules of democracy. is an issue. Of course that's an issue, of course there's a problem. But it's not logical to use that as an argument against democracy, simply because what that represents is a leader who is trying to uh, remove democracy, a leader who is trying to weaken democracy, a leader who is trying to make the country less democratic. And yes, those leaders exist, and yes, those leaders can be elected, but pointing out that those leaders are a problem pointing out that their actions are problematic is an admission that a democratic system is a good one and simply admitting that it is somewhat fragile and we need to protect it. Yeah, and in the in the case of Hitler more specifically, first of all, he never won a majority in the Reichstag. Uh, he did have the largest party at some point and then he kind of manoeuvred his way cleverly into a coalition and ended up as the chancellor, but he never actually won a, an outright majority. So the the notion that Hitler was democratically elected as leader of Germany is in the first place factually wrong. Um, But secondly, building on what we said about Trump, uh, the fact that democracies can move towards autocracy is not an argument against democracy. It's an argument, if anything, that autocracy is bad and we should try and safeguard democracy. And yes, there are many populist leaders. You have Trump or you had Trump in the USA, still have Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India. Uh, And these are all populist leaders in democratic systems. But what's really crucial to remember is that populism is not a product of democracy. Populism is something that exists in politics. People or or leaders try to appeal to what they call popular will or popular sentiment. And that can happen with or without a democracy. Um, It is a problem because it endangers democracy, but it is not a product of democracy in itself. And in fact, populism is probably a good topic for a future podcast quite soon. So I guess the milder version of that question is, um, even if a leader is not as morally reprehensible as Hitler, um, it is often the case, in fact it's always the case after an election, there is a losing side, and that leaders who are elected might not be representative of the views of everyone in the country. Right. Um And there are a number of counterpoints to this, uh, that firstly, in many cases, this is more of an issue with the voting system than it is with democracy inherently. Um, Different voting systems are more proportional than others, and there are trade-offs in, you know, whether you want a strong, stable government, to paraphrase Theresa May, 
uh, or whether you want a more proportional representative government. Um, and it is possible to have more proportional systems which are still democratic. Uh, even more fundamentally than that, though, the fact that someone is elected who you don't like is not a critique of the system in itself. What it means is that most people in the country, or the largest block in the country in most voting systems, have supported that person. And in that case, legitimacy is afforded through the ballot box, through the vote. That is how they have the legitimacy or the permission or the perceived rightness to rule the country and implement policy. And it's possibly worth at this point uh, devoting just a couple of minutes to the word legitimacy uh, and what that means, because it's another word that's often thrown around in political discourse, uh, but not very frequently well understood. So legitimacy, in very simple terms, is perceived rightness or uh, permission or authority to make a decision. And in our current democratic system, legitimacy comes through winning elections. That's how you have, or that's how a government has the perceived rightness or moral authority in order to carry out its policies. Uh, Historically, other sources of legitimacy have been having the bigger stick, i.e. having a strong military force uh, and being able to threaten other people with violence or commit violence in order to enact your policies. Um, Belief in a supernatural order, so things like belief in the divine right of kings, uh, belief in the mandate of heaven, um, or simply uh, a universally believed hierarchical structure of monarchy or class which is detached from any specific religious connotations. Uh, And in our view, legitimacy which is provided through a democratic vote uh, is firstly the most peaceful kind of legitimacy that can be provided uh, certainly much more so than legitimacy provided through military force and it is also the most universal form of legitimacy because obviously not everyone subscribes to a particular religion or particular beliefs about how society should be structured or about the rightness of monarchy or for example whether we should have a caste system And in the instance that not everyone agrees on those broad, overarching things, simply asking everyone, do you consent to this or do you agree with this, is the best way to gain legitimacy for political power. So if legitimacy is uh, bestowed by winning elections, if I disagree, strongly morally disagree with uh, a potential leader and they... Uh, win a free and fair election with a, with a big uh, majority, and it's a the, I have no problem with the electoral system. That election win clearly sort of shows the will of the people in inverted commas. Does that mean that I I am then wrong? Well, no, of course not, because it's exactly democracy which affords you the right to carry on disagreeing, to carry on protesting, to carry on organising against the government that you disagree with. Um, democracy is what allows for that consent to be renewed and changed and in the future there will be new elections and there you can again express your discontent and if other people or the majority of people feel the same as you then a new government will be formed. And to bring that back to the original point the removal of Donald Trump after only four years in office is if anything a Uh, show of the power of democracy rather than uh, using his election in the first place as a show of its weakness. And some caveats to that. Obviously, uh, a lot of people were were harmed or uh, died directly or indirectly as a result of Donald Trump's presidency, and we are in no way minimising that. But it is obviously patently clear that in a dictatorial system or one with less democratic checks and balances, the harm he caused would have been much more severe and he may not have been removed at all. Another historical example that's often thrown in the face uh, of democracy is the early United States. The United States, of course, was founded on democratic principles, um, but its economy ran on slavery for a significant portion of its history. Uh, And I think the, the simple response to that is that the USA at that point was not a democracy. Um, And arguably the USA wasn't really a democracy until the 1960s at least, and the full extension of voting rights to African Americans. Um, There are many examples of flawed democracies or hybrid regimes in the past, uh, which were pretty terrible. um, And the response would be, 
that's no way linked to democracy. That's really because of a lack of democracy. And as democracy has been introduced, those states and the conditions for minorities within those states has got a lot better. Um, fundamentally, I don't think a state or a system could be called democratic unless it affords the vote uh, at a bare minimum to all adults of whatever race, religion, uh, political persuasion, ethnicity, gender, gender orient, um, sexual orientation. Um, unless all adults have the vote at a bare minimum, a system cannot be called democratic. And there are, of course, arguments about when someone is a child and when they are an adult, but those are kind of by the by and those are still up in the air. So unless everyone over the age of 21 has the vote, it can't really be called a democracy and slavery is as antithetical to democracy as you can get. And as a corollary to that, it's probably worth quickly mentioning um, ancient uh, Greek democracies, in inverted commas, because every now and then you get a completely misguided academic claim on the internet that democracy now is is failing because we've departed from its original purest form. And to point out that this is horrific historical revisionism and the idea that sort of Athenian democracy was a, a perfect utopia where everyone who lived in Athens joined in with um, a political process is complete nonsense because, of course, that little political clique within which... Um, there was quite an egalitarian democratic system uh, excluded. Should we try and do the full list? Women. Slaves. Uh, those of low birth. Foreigners. Those who didn't own property. I think that's it. Is there any more? Those who didn't have a beard, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but Yeah, so so Athenian democracy is, is a terrible example of democracy, uh, as is Roman Republican democracy, which um, the Republican Party in the US likes to harken back to also not a democracy, the vast majority of people in ancient Rome could not vote. Our next critique is the meritocratic critique of democracy, that there is a skill to being a ruler, that the ideal ruler, the ideal leader of a country requires a very good knowledge of economics and international relations and all sorts of other things, and that the vast majority of people out there are not suitable for this, and it makes a massive difference to everyone's lives if we choose someone who is uh, intelligent and well-read and knowledgeable enough to do that job. So why don't we have a system that chooses the most uh, sort of gifted and intelligent leaders rather than the most popular? Um, and there's a number of counter-arguments to this. I think the first one is that we need to distinguish between broad goals for society or a policy to achieve and the specific means by which to achieve them. Now, for the specific means by which a broad goal should be achieved, you can well make the argument that there are people that are experts in certain fields and that we should adopt something resembling a technocracy where those people um, deal with those problems because they are experts in those fields. For example, if it's an economic issue, then we should have a cadre of highly specialised uh, intelligent economists running their area of policy so that they make the best possible decisions. That argument, though, doesn't really stack up when we consider that broad objectives are not something that can be logically or rationally determined. Something like, for example, is inequality a good thing or how much inequality is tolerable? That is not a question which can be answered on a rational, scientific, empirical basis. There's no one we can point to and say they are the technical experts in this field. They should answer the question. They should devise the solution because fundamentally the question is one of morality and values and ethics and those are not objective and we can't really have experts in that field. That's something which can only be put to a majority of people and decided by consensus. Absolutely. Or the other example I might use there is that in policing, there is an extraordinary amount of skill involved, and there are some people who have the sort of the intelligence and knowledge and ability to work out what's happened, and, and people are specialists in forensic science and are fantastic at looking at all sorts of crazy data and working out uh, who did what. And that is a very sort of technocratic process. We should have the people who are best at doing that in that role, uh, and they don't necessarily need to be elected. But 
enforcing the law is a very different problem to deciding on it. And deciding what we think is is so morally wrong as to be illegal is not something that has a uh, technocratic sort of data-driven answer. It's a question of values and morals, as you said. Yeah, and I guess even if we accept that in some fields, um, technocracy is a good solution. Uh, if we if we turn to the idea that we should simply select people by their expertise in a certain field, whether that's, I don't know, uh, economics or city planning, just appealing to all of Paul's interests here, uh, economics or city planning or foreign policy or um, te- technological expertise. Trains. Trains. Um, there is no objective definition of intelligence or who is the best. Uh, there are no objective definitions of what kind of knowledge is valuable and what isn't. For example, um, there is no objective way to say whether artistic knowledge or artistic skill uh, is more valuable than, I don't know, knowing how trains work. Uh, It depends on what a society prioritises and what a society thinks is important. Um, And really then, if we can't decide on an objective standard of intelligence or skill, the best way to decide that is simply by asking everyone. And the way you ask everyone is through a democratic election. This is a pretty irrelevant side note, uh, but for those of you sat there going, but you can measure intelligence. We have IQ tests. Um, As a current and former educator, we can assure you IQ tests are nonsense, and there is no such thing as an objective measurement of intelligence or a single definition of intelligence. Um, Um, And I, indeed, I think also picking up on the historical angle of this, uh, in any political system, any intelligence tests uh, have largely been used to cut minorities out of the process um, and to entrench the dominance of whoever the ruling group is at the time. Um, they're not really a measure, as we said, for that there isn't a measure for objectively assessing intelligence, uh, only really conformity to the existing standards. Absolutely. There's the, the classic anecdote of the, the white voter who walks up to the polling booth and is asked, what, seven times eight? And, and takes his time and uh, clearly is not mathematically gifted and has to sort of work it out on a handkerchief and eventually gets to 56 and is allowed to vote. And the African-American voter who walks up to Polly Booth and is asked, how many bubbles on a bar of soap? I did last year come across a very interesting example of an intelligence test from Louisiana in the 1960s, which was applied to black voters in an attempt to bar them from voting. It is nominally an intelligence test, but we'll post it on Twitter and you can have a look for yourselves. Um, It is really an attempt to bar people from voting. And any intelligence test applied in any system to try and determine who should have the right to vote or who should have the, the right to rule is only ever an attempt to entrench the dominance of the existing establishment. Another critique that people often make of democracy is that autocracies or systems which are ruled by one individual or a small elite, however that elite is defined, or very experienced expert individuals can make better decisions than people can in in a democracy. Uh, They can make longer term plans, they can exert more control over the economy and political affairs and therefore lead to better outcomes. And this is one of those things that's very, very difficult to prove uh, and there are lots of an- there's lots of anecdotal evidence on both sides, right? There are lots of very poor, very badly run democratic countries, and there are one or two uh, very wealthy, relatively well run autocratic countries. Um, in terms of long term planning, what we should say is this is almost impossible to prove, but there are plenty of democratic countries that have lots of infrastructure. Um, I raise that simply because it generally takes sort of decades to build and governments can only, if this critique is true and they only plan for up until the next election, governments would never build something like HS2, which is going to take about 25 years to build, um, if they're only thinking five years ahead to the next election. And on the other side, uh, socialist governments uh, started by the USSR, but the Chinese government loves to still do this release a five-year plan for the economy every five years. It's a, it's a very f- sort of big event in the socialist calendar. Um, and of course, a five-year horizon is a pretty average time for an electoral cycle in democracies. So it's not a significantly different planning horizon. Well, definitely identical to the um, planning horizon in the UK, where 
until Boris Johnson repeals the Fixed Term Parliament Act, we have five years between elections. But in terms of general sort of long-term viewing, uh, it's that's very difficult to prove. There's not really a statistic we can look at to say, Xi Jinping, how long-term are your plans? Uh, and compare that to, to sort of democratic rulers. But what we can do is look at the data on standard of living and compare that to uh, democracy and whether it correlates. And the short answer is it does. There is a pretty strong correlation between standard of living and democracy. It's weakest if you look at GDP per capita and democracy, uh, but that is simply because of the Gulf states, which are very rich because of oil and gas exports uh, and not at all democratic. If you take those out... Uh, the correlation between GDP per capita and uh, democracy becomes much stronger. And the reason why I'm very comfortable taking those out, and that seems like I'm sort of uh, cherry-picking cherry picking the data to fit my, fit my view, is because the problem with GDP per capita is it's just a simple average. It takes the total income of the country and divides it by the population and tells you um, how much each person in the country would earn if all the income in the country were split evenly. Now, in some countries, that's a reasonably good estimate. In Sweden, GDP per capita is not too far off what the average Swede earns. But the more unequal the country is, the less accurate that then becomes. And the reason why I'm happy taking those Gulf states out is that they are horribly unequal. That uh, oil and gas money flows to the government, uh, and then the government in most of those countries constitutes a royal family. It is not necessarily seen by the vast proportion of the population. And so um, if you take better statistics on standard of living, if you look at life expectancy, if you look at median income rather than mean average income, if you look at hunger and malnourishment, if you look at violence and homicide, all of these things show strong correlations with democracy. And one thing where we have to admit we don't have all the answers and indeed no one does is that there is clearly a strong correlation between living standards and democracy. What is not clear and what has not been empirically proven to any degree is in which direction that causation flows. Is it the case that when countries are democratic, they are more likely to see rises in living standards which are faster than non-democracies or less democratic countries? Or is it the case that it is countries with high living standards which are more receptive to democracy and in which democracy takes root uh, to a greater degree? My personal opinion in this is that it's a little bit of both and it's not entirely one way or the other. But again, this is something we have to admit has not been proven at all uh, to any degree of certainty. There are some very compelling and very interesting arguments on both sides, but I think that is a Uh, Another story for another time. Another really important counter-argument to the critique that autocracies are better run than democracies is that, yes, that might well be the case in the short term. You might find short-term examples of individual leaders in more autocratic or less democratic countries where they do run things very well uh, and you do see massive economic growth and infrastructure development and education and all the rest of it. And in the short term, we are not saying that it is impossible for an autocracy to be run, air quotes, successfully. The issue is, again, when we compare the short-term frame and the long-term frame. And in the long-term frame, yes, you might have democratic leaders democratically elected who are not particularly effective, but then they are peacefully removed from office and a new alternative comes into place. In an autocracy, Firstly, you don't have the guarantee that all of the autocrats in the long term will be benevolent and efficient and competent. What happens if you get a very incompetent dictator and they mess everything up? You have no way to remove them. Which leads into the second counter-argument that in autocracies, there is no peaceful mechanism to remove a leader. If you think someone is doing a terrible job or they are wildly incompetent or that they are terrorising the populace, you have no way to peacefully remove them. And therefore, democracy, we would say, in the long term is a better system because there is an established peaceful succession system. You lose the election, you leave office. Um, Even with someone like Trump, who, who was very resistant to that idea, we can see it was ultimately implemented. In autocracies, there is no peaceful succession system. Indeed, there is no uh, widespread popular succession system at all. 
people have no say. And therefore, if people want to change the succession, the only way to do that is through violence. As we've seen, for example, in the Syrian civil war uh, and the, the chaotic and catastrophic aftermath, people wanted to remove Bashar al-Assad because he was a terrible leader and was brutalizing the population. He fought back. We now have a incredibly bloody civil war um, with horrifically high death tolls. Another very common critique of democracy is that it is simply a tyranny of the majority uh, and therefore we shouldn't implement it. It just lets the majority uh, legitimize their tyranny over minority groups. And one example which is commonly used to illustrate this is the current case of Rwanda uh, and the current leader of the country, Paul Kagame, and his arguments that democracy would be bad for Rwanda. And his argument that it would be bad for Rwanda um, dates all the way back to when he became president in 1994, when he actually invaded the country uh, with a, a rebel group that he'd been hiding out in Uganda with. But again, that's another story. Uh, and put an end to, by force, put an end to the Rwandan genocide. Now, that action of, of ending the genocide was obviously tremendously beneficial for Rwanda. The genocide is one of the worst that has ever happened in human history. Um, but he has been in power ever since on the basis that he claims if he's removed from power, the genocide will occur again or genocidal sort of pressure will build and it could occur again. Uh, and he's been using that as his excuse to not have elections for the last, uh, maths, 27 years. Um, all the while he has been uh, imprisoning and disappearing countless political opponents and is generally not a very nice man. Yeah, and it's worth noting that he's not the only person to have ever made this argument. The argument that autocracy or dictatorial rule is necessary to prevent ethnic violence and therefore democracy cannot be implemented is a very common one throughout history. Um, other examples that come to mind, uh, Assad in Syria uh, makes the claim that if he were removed from office, then there would be a widespread genocide of minority groups like Alawites, Shias, uh, Druze in Syria. In India, for example, during the, the British Empire, the argument of the British administration was that, no, we can't leave India, we can't give them democracy, because then the Hindus will just kill the Muslims who are the minority. And the most uh, up-to-date example that we're, we're missing here is Ethiopia, where uh, democratic reforms over the last few years have been uh, argued to have uh, contributed to the current civil war. Yeah, through the decentralization of the country and the basis of different Ethiopian provinces on ethnic groups, uh, the argument is made that that has increased ethnic tensions uh, and the breakaway of, of northern regions. To counter this argument properly, we need to get into a long discussion about ethnicity, ethnic violence, uh, where it comes from and what causes it. Uh, but I will try and summarize this briefly by talking about the Rwandan example specifically, um, partly because Rwandan genocide was something I spent a lot of time on at university, uh, and partly because it's, it's a, it's a sort of very well-documented but very poorly understood example. Because a lot of people seem to think that the Rwandan genocide was this outpouring, outburst of uh, ancient ethnic hatreds that had been there for, for all time, that Hutu and Tutsi had hated each other forever, and that it was merely a case of a political spark in the event of the Rwandan genocide. It was the president's uh, plane being shot down and, and he was killed um, that released this this sort of outpouring of violence that that had been simmering under, under the surface and that was sort of embedded in the population. That's not true for multiple reasons, but the one that's important for this particular discussion is that the Rwandan genocide was not a spontaneous outpouring of violence. The will for violence was not just contained within people innately because of their ethnic differences. There were years and years leading up to the genocide of uh, a systematic campaign to discredit Tutsis. There are all sorts of uh, sort of newspaper headlines and stories demonizing Tutsis, all sorts of political speeches. This was a thoroughly planned event, and the killing was not, as is generally considered, just sort of completely decentralized. All Hutus had always hated Tutsis and just barreled down the road, killing any Tutsis they could find. This was uh, heavily organized by the armed forces and various other political groups. Many people joined in out of fear, but it was orchestrated. It was 
uh, organised by, and this brings us back to Hitler at the top of the bill, um, by an autocratic regime. So the point is, ethnic violence is not just something that people want and that if we allow people the freedom of a democratic system, they will argue for. Ethnic violence is something that happens when um, organised groups push for it. And in autocracy, it may be the case that those groups are kept underground. It may be the case that those groups um, are part of the government and there's nothing we can do about it. In a truly liberal democratic system where we have the discussion and the debate about uh, values, where all voices are heard in the political um, decision system, uh, those groups should not have the power, in this case the armed forces, often the armed forces, the Tatmadaw in Myanmar, as we talked about a few weeks ago, um, should not have the power to be able to commit atrocities like this. Yeah, and one quite interesting political theory that's, uh, I think, relevant here is that of the selectorate. Uh, And selectorate theory is the idea that in any political system, there is a circle of people or a selectorate to whom the potential leader of the country has to appeal to gain power. In an autocracy, that is a very small selectorate, perhaps only their family members or perhaps only the armed forces. And so the winning coalition the people that the leader has to win over or the potential leader has to win over to become leader is very small. Whereas in a democracy, the selectorate is extremely large. It's effectively uh, the entire adult population. And so I think it is fair to say that in autocracies, it is more likely that you will have atrocities. It is more likely that you will have ethnic violence orchestrated by those small circles as a way to retain power or as a way to you know, gain popular legitimacy within that very small circle, where you have a very wide democratic selectorate, then there is the need for the government to appeal to that broad circle, to you know improve living standards, to build infrastructure, to be more peaceful, to generally avoid civil war and ethnic violence, uh, because those things are destructive. And it's worth pointing out as well that in democracy, the selectorate is uncertain. It's not like uh, with the government that gains its legitimacy from the armed forces and needs to keep the armed forces loyal in order to stay in power, there is a clear distinction between those who are part of the armed forces and those who are not. Whereas in a democracy, someone might not have voted for you in the last election. But A, you don't necessarily know who, who that is. We have a secret ballot for a reason. And B, everyone is a potential voter. Um, if anything, it's actually the people who didn't vote for you last time that you need to be concentrating on in order to gain more votes. So our final and perhaps most important critique, uh, and this is one that is put forward a lot by the Chinese government and Chinese journalists, but it is by no means a Chinese argument, you hear this uh, from people all over the world, is that democracy is a Western idea. Democracy is a Western system and a Western cultural artefact, and that any argument like we're making that democracy is a universal system that is the best way to uh, choose leaders and politicians anywhere in the world is imperialist and is imposing those Western ideas on other cultures. Um, And broadly, this idea is expressed in in two ways. There is firstly, mainly nowadays, the the Chinese government arguing this, but the Asian values or the East Asian values argument, which I think I actually first read in a Uh, in a news magazine in Singapore when I was about 12, um, is that democracy is incompatible with Asian culture, Asian culture values, order, loyalty, stability, and those things are not compatible with democracy. The other main way this is usually expressed in the modern world is the Islamist argument that uh, democracy is incompatible with Islam, and instead of having democracy, we should have an enlightened uh, elite of Islamic scholars or Islamic leaders who should direct the state. And again, uh, democracy is a Western subversion of this ideal perfect system. The first thing to say is that, yes, what we understand as modern democracy did originate in the West, but that is entirely irrelevant to whether it, whether or not it is a universal idea or whether or not it is a good thing which countries should accept. Every single idea or technology in the world has started in a specific place. Um, and we don't extend the argument to any other idea and technology saying just because it originated in one place, it cannot be applied elsewhere. For example, the, the numbers that we use today, 
started in India, were transmitted into the Arab or the Muslim world, and from them are used now across the entire world. No one argues that because they were initially an Indo-Arab idea, we shouldn't use them in the West and we should stick to Roman numerals. Modern sewage systems started in the West. Again, we don't argue that we shouldn't use them in other places in the world or that they're Western imperialism. Uh, I mean, some people in the BJP do uh, and say that you shouldn't have flushing toilets inside, but that's beside the point. They're not cases. We all accept sewage systems are a universally good idea. So where an idea starts or where a technology starts has no bearing on whether or not it is truly universal. And people tend to not worry about this in terms of technologies because they're sort of physical things. And okay, the idea of how to make it uh, comes across from somewhere else, but the thing itself can be made in that place and come from that place. Um, But there, there there is no real difference. As you say, a technology is fundamentally an idea and people shouldn't have this resistance when it comes to sort of intangible social ideas um, that they don't have with more sort of physical ideas. Yeah. So what we would argue is that democracy is acultural. Uh, The prefix a in this sense, meaning that it is not an endorsement or a rejection uh, of the idea um, as in moral or immoral. It is acultural. It is not concerned with culture. Culture is not part of what democracy is. Uh, democracy is a system for figuring out, for discerning what the values or the beliefs of a group, a political group are, so that those beliefs can then be implemented into legislation. It doesn't pre-impose or it doesn't presuppose any particular cultural conclusions. Um, there are democracies all around the world which have very, very different cultures and very, very different policies. And this proves the point that democracy is a cultural. It is not the imposition of a particular Western culture. It is merely a mechanism for finding out what most people in a given policy want. Uh, If we look at a variety of different democracies, uh, the UK, Japan, India, although you could argue India is somewhat slipping away from democracy as is Turkey, or South African democracies such as Botswana, they all have very different policies. They all have very different cultures. Democracy does not westernize them. Democracy is just a tool for figuring out what most people want in a political sense. And it's also not imperialist for us to be arguing that democracy is a good thing. Um, We're not imposing it on anybody. We're merely arguing that it is a good thing. What is, I suppose, uh, what you could term imperialist is uh, an imposition of a particular set of of values or, or cultural norms or ideals on a population that the population as a whole has not consented to, which is what is happening in autocratic countries, which is what has always happened in autocratic countries, where you have thinkers, politicians, leaders, journalists, whatever, declaring that the the culture or the country's values are X, Y, and Z, with no actual empirical uh, way of testing that, with no sort of deliberation with no group deliberation of whether those are what Chinese values are. Um, And I think even more fundamentally than that, the idea that democracy is imperialist or in some way racist, it's the imposition of Western values on non-Western people, is an argument which is used disingenuously by dictators, whether they be Arab, Middle Eastern, East Asian, to support the continuance of their dictatorships, arguing that their people don't need democracy. In fact, democracy would be damaging to their people. um, And they alone are the safeguarders of Islamic culture or Islamic tradition or Confucian um, stability and order and and loyalty. And very often, I think it is the case that dictatorships use these cultural arguments in order to legitimise the continuing of their own dictatorships. I would argue that it is actually imperialist and racist to argue that democracy is not suited for certain groups of people uh, on the basis that they can't be educated or they're not rational or somehow they are inherently genetically more submissive and they need a firm hand or a strong government to rule over them. I would say that that in itself is, is the racist argument because fundamentally all human beings are entitled to some deliberation or to, to the decision of what is good for them and what they believe in. And the argument that it is only Western human beings that are entitled to this luxury is a racist argument. 
And that brings us to the crux of the matter here. And uh, also the proof, if you like, that democracy is an acultural good, which is that behind all of these arguments against democracy or behind all of the arguments of autocrats is the nugget that some group of people are somehow more worthy, more valuable, more important than others. And throughout history, with people arguing against suffrage, going to different groups, uh, we've seen this, that it's it's uh, slaves who are less worthy than others, or it's women, or it's people who don't own property, or in the case of the Chinese government, the Chinese people, um, or whoever, is less worthy than another group and therefore should not be included in the political uh, decision-making system. Yeah, and to to extend that further, I guess also people of specific classes or people who are not uh, educated or uh, whether that's secular education or religious education, people who aren't intelligent enough. And fundamentally, if you accept the, the argument that human beings are all fundamentally equal, democracy is the only logical form of government unless you believe that some human beings are superior to others, you cannot argue for a system other than democracy where everyone has an equal say. Um, And of course, convincing you that all human beings are equal is something we hope we don't have to do. But if you accept that as a fundamental proposition, then democracy is the only logical form of government. Exactly. And cultural differences are... Um, sort of superfluous differences over the top of that. There are differences in uh, language and food and dress and the way people go about their lives, but they do not in any way uh, dismantle the underpinning assumption that fundamentally all people are of equal worth. And that pretty much concludes our defence of democracy. Thank you very much for listening. As always, if you'd uh, like to get in touch with us about anything we've said or anything that you'd like us to say in future, you can tweet us at underscore the violet underscore, email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com or visit the website. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please share it on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, let your friends and family know and help us to broaden our audience. Thank you and see you next time.